Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Donald Trump has released the transcript of the phone call with the Ukrainian president, and House Democrats who have read the whistleblower complaint have described it as deeply disturbing. Hamilton City Council is moving forward with negotiations with Cardis despite the concerns of the LGBTQ residents in the city. And the standardized test results are in, and the majority of elementary school students in Hamilton are not meeting the provincial math standards. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. High drama in Washington. Uh, United States President Donald Trump uh, released a, well, his office released the transcript, as they call it, of a phone call between the Ukraine leader and, uh, and the president. And House Democrats now figure that that's enough to start what they call impeachment inquiries. Uh, was, as to where is this going to go? Well, actually, we may have a better determination of that today when the uh, alleged whistleblower complaint is actually being presented before the Congress as well. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, good morning, Bill. What a day. It, well, what a week this has been. And, and, and yes. as you say, this is a very fluid story. This seems to be changing by the minute. Bef- before we get into what might be happening today, uh, let's talk a little bit about yesterday and, sure. and your impressions of it. Because it was, like you say, it just kept coming at us for just about every minute there was something new. Well, the uh, the big takeaway is that now there's a formal impeachment inquiry into the President of the United States. And the Speaker of the House has said uh, that he may have seriously violated the Constitution. That's a very strong um, statement and a very decisive, defining moment in our current political era. Until now, there's been... <laughs> A lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, if you like him, then you agree with everything he does. If you don't like him, you disagree with everything he does, etc. But uh, this now enters history. This is this is no longer he said, she said. Oh, isn't that terrible? Isn't it wonderful? Uh, there's a formal process underway, and today there's going to be material relating to it, and that material uh, is based on a whistleblower who said that uh, witnesses, have, witnesses in the White House fear that he, uh, Trump has abused his office for personal gain. And there's the crux of it. Were you surprised they released the, uh, I, it's, well, they're calling it a transcript. It's not really a transcript, but I mean, no. it is a, a pretty strong uh, characterization, I guess, of the phone call that he did make uh, with the, uh, the president of Ukraine. Uh, there's some damning information in here, Elliot, and that's not something usually Trump likes to see out in the public. No, and it, and... So the question is why, and uh, I think, you know, I, I'd like to argue on the one hand that Trump has had a really good day, and the release of this factors into it. Uh, the good day for Trump is that all of this uh, phone call and the pressure on Ukraine and so forth was done specifically to get Biden into the news and to smear him, and uh, we'll go into a lot of detail, but uh, he may be impeached over that effort. Uh, he, he will be possibly impeached over the effort to get Biden's name smeared, but this uh, release does that. So it's a really good day for Trump in the sense that Biden, his chief opponent, in his own mind, at the time of that uh, phone call and other actions, and there's more than a phone call involved, uh, Biden is now in the news. Uh, the Republicans are, uh, many of them, and the surrogates are leading what could uh, legitimately be called, well, either an inquiry or a smear. And 
Uh, Bill, we should notice this is at a time when Biden was faltering now, later. Biden is now faltering in the polls, and Warren is up. So what Trump was trying to do was eliminate his strongest opponent in his mind uh, in the upcoming election. That's not only working, but Warren is surging in the polls, and she was the first one to call for the impeachment of the major contenders for the, um, for the impeachment of the president. So uh, on the one hand, you can say this was a really good day. Everything he wanted has succeeded. His strongest potential opponent is, uh, is now uh, weakened and damaged, and somebody he thinks he can beat more easily is up. Also, Bill, uh, the Democrats have now done something that Trump may have welcomed. They're now on a dead-end path to an impeachment bill of particulars. That is, they, all the House can do is say, we found evidence we wish to send on to the Senate, whether it be something equivalent to a trial. There's no way at the minute they could win in the Senate. The Senate is controlled by the Republicans. It takes a two-thirds vote. Uh, so he's on his way to an election with a weaker candidate and having been cleared by the Senate of any wrongdoing. And he is mobilizing his base over this issue. Just in case you weren't thinking of coming out to vote, if you didn't want to uh, volunteer money in your time, boy, this really is a great mobilizer. So you could say all of this is good for Trump. But with his huge ego, which seems to dominate almost everything that he does, Elliot, uh, he's still probably going to get impeached. I mean, you know, even if it's only the House that does it, he's not going to get kicked out of office. That's just not going to happen, uh, as you say, because of what's going to happen in the Senate if it ever gets that far, and it probably will at some point. But, but is he willing to take that, that hit on his ego to actually say you're one of the few presidents in the history of this country that got impeached? Just to, but, but on the yeah. other hand, if, it's, if it does give him a clearer path to re-election, is, he worth, is, it, is that a price he's willing to pay? Well, and it comes back to the question you, you started with, is uh, why would he release this now? Um, the other side of the argument is it was a really bad day for Trump, because now there's a formal mechanism in place and very serious charges pending uh, from this whistleblower. But remember, the House uh, Judiciary Committee uh, under Nadler has been pursuing this for, for weeks and weeks. There's a lot of other stuff that's already underway. So a mechanism is now in place to pursue him. And uh, what has held all this up? why we have not had the impeachment until now, when somebody, somebody as serious as Nadler and other people have said, we got the goods on him, we want to go ahead, is that seven members of the vulnerable uh, new Democrats, that is the Democrats who flipped the House by taking the suburbs uh, in the 2018 election, they came out with an op-ed, and that seemed to be the trigger for where we are. They, these people who are serious people, they all have intelligence or military or security backgrounds who come out and said, you know, we are willing to risk our re-election because we think this is such a serious uh, offense against uh, the Constitution that we've sworn in all of our lives in various ways to uphold. That seems to be what's uh, triggered all this. And why did he release this now? Uh, it seems damning. And I think something that's not been brought up yet is uh, what we have is the possible impeachment going forward to the Senate based on a number of charges, but one of them is obstruction of justice. 
and we're just just now getting more details on that, by mm-hmm. the way, uh, with this lockdown of records, and we can talk about it. But why would he release this now, given everything that, you know, it seems to corroborate, corroborate what people are saying. It's entirely possible that somebody is whispering in his ear very seriously, look, um, you'd better get this out, because one thing they can actually convict you on, no matter what else is going on, is if you are obstructing justice. So you'd better get this thing out there and uh, deal with it politically, which you're very able to do, sir, and all your surrogates can do, sir, and the Republicans in the Senate will back you up, etc. But obstruction of justice is truly an, a convictable offense in the Senate. And uh, and there's others, as you say, that are getting dragged into this, too. I mean, Bill Barr's name has been mentioned now, too, because yes. of some of the, the things that the Justice Department has done on this. But And that's one of the reasons I was surprised about this release of the document, uh, unredacted as it is, uh, because he seemed to have weathered the storm about the Mueller report, for all intents and purposes. I mean, there were still some people that, that like Nadler and others, that thought, okay, we can still move on impeachment. But I, I don't think it had a whole lot of push behind it. But this, this situation with Ukraine now has just put wing beneath the wings of, of Nadler and, and Pelosi and everybody else. And it's almost like, a forget about the Mueller report now, we're just going to concentrate on this. Yes, this is also a political argument, because uh, actually... One of the key things out of the Mueller report was, if we could have cleared the president, we would have, but we couldn't clear him. So, okay, Congress, go do your thing, was the subtext of all that. But politically, this has been well managed by the White House and by William Barr in particular, whose name is now caught up in in this current situation. So the Democrats are saying, okay, we're not looking back. We're looking forward. This is today. This is tomorrow. This wasn't yesterday. So stop trying to anchor us. (laughs) <laughs> and, and hinder us by saying we just want to go and, and uh, re- redo the last election that we lost. So I think that uh, that's a, a very important point you just made. There's a two-headed monster here. There's obviously uh, this idea about obstruction of justice, but what the, the Republicans are not and talking about here, I've heard Lindsey Graham and McConnell and all these other people have spoken oh, yes. up about this. And that, yeah, you're right. They're talking about the Biden thing. They seem oblivious to the fact that this guy actually withheld money that Congress had already allocated for Ukraine. I mean, that's they. I'm told that in itself is an impeachable offense. In other words, you know, he, he you do this for me, you go get your money. Yes, uh, the Republicans uh, have rallied around the president. They are sticking with him. When you hear somebody like Lindsey Graham talk the way he did then that shows, remember, he's head of the Judiciary Committee, <laughs> and he's been a maverick in the past. I mean, he, he was a close friend of, of um, John McCain. And yeah. so, so he's entirely possible to be one of those guys who will turn on a dime and say, look, we have to uphold the Constitution, even though I love you, Mr. President. He didn't do that. He hasn't done that yet. So what this shows is that Republicans are doing just as you suggested. They are, they're joining in in the smearing of Biden and trying to say, don't look over here uh, where there might be actual impeachable offenses. You know, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Uh, something that, again, has not been talked enough about is the Russian connection to all this and the implications. But, um, no, uh, Congress, in fact, had passed uh, a bill saying, hey, let's get this stuff over, this uh, uh, equipment over to the Ukraine, who is our ally, our democratic ally being attacked by uh, the evil empire being attacked by Russia, and uh, Donald, what we have now, and this is what is the substance of almost all the conversation, is a clear pattern of trying to basically uh, uh, 
it's being put now this way, in a simple way, shake down a foreign leader uh, for your own personal uh, ends, uh, inviting yet another interference. Remember, this was done one day after Mueller testified, this phone call. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, okay, I got away with uh, inviting the Russians in, but now I'm going to invite the, I'm going to force the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukraine government, to assist me in my re-election campaign. And that's what, that's what uh, the, the essence of the charges now being uh, laid out as a possible impeachment. They're surrounding all of that issue. In, I'm old enough to remember Watergate. I was just getting into the business uh, when that was going on, and I watched it, of course, with great interest as, as the world did. did. Uh, the turnabout in that particular instance, of course, was, was the tapes, the, the, the Nixon tapes. Uh, that yes. really turned even the Republicans that were defending Nixon up to that point said, okay, well, look, we can't do this anymore. Is this Ukraine situation strong enough to turn Republicans uh, in that direction as, it, as the tapes did with Watergate? Well, this was my, my point earlier, that whereas on the one hand this could be considered really, you know, ultimately a good day for, for Trump leading to his reelection, on the other hand, the machinery is in place and well underway, so... If something really breaks, equivalent to the tapes, uh, it could go into high gear uh, to the point where even the Republicans will say, "Look, we, we, there's no way we can we can stay with you anymore." And also keep in mind that uh, they would many of the Republicans would dump Trump in a hot minute if they thought they could get away with it. But his command over the Republican Party uh, is so that that is the, the voting public of the Republicans is so complete that the Republicans in the elected branches of government are basically held hostage to it. I don't think they like a lot of this uh, deficit stuff, and they don't like a lot of what he does. They certainly, in many cases, don't like the way he does it, but they are absolutely going to stick with him to the very end because he controls their re-election, their fate. And, and this is something, again, I think worth emphasizing. The Republicans are, are laser-focused on holding power power, whereas a lot of the Democrats are very laser-focused on principle. So, oh, we can't have this. The issue we are talking about today, a phone call from the president to, uh, to the president of another country over there to talk about Biden, the general public is, is not touched by this. This is not an issue that is material to the well-being of the general public, and the polls have shown that the general public has been opposed to impeachment anyway, uh, so that the Democratic base, of course, was in favor. But uh, this is not a live wire issue involving corruption that affects the fate of individuals in the countryside. So the Democrats have chosen this hill to make their stand, but it's not a hill that has any resonance politically much with the general population, because they're still worried about health care. And, you know, can my kids go to college? And can I get, can I get my, my medicines when I need them? And so the, bre the bread and butter issues that could really uh, be affected by a different issue are not part of this issue. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. But, I mean, this is another pivotal day, too, with McGuire testifying right now as you and I yes. speak. And maybe, yes. maybe more information about that whistleblower, too. Elliot, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, Bill. Great talking with you again. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, uh, Professor Emeritus from Carleton University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, yesterday, Hamilton City Council decided to move ahead with talks that would see a Christian-based think tank, uh, at least the historic Balfour House that's up on the mountain, of course, uh, despite many concerns that have been raised over the last couple of weeks from the LGBTQ community and, and others, frankly, around the city. Uh, it was a rather uh, interesting discussion in, uh, around the city council table yesterday. Uh, the problem here is not what they're doing. It's uh, with whom they are doing it, I guess. Uh, the organization, of course, is called Cardis, uh, and they have been here in this community for some time uh, in a different location and uh, and now want to take this place over. They uh, Just to get into the the land deal for a second, yeah, about a million dollars worth of money, dollars of uh, work is needed there, and they say, well, well, we'll do that for you if you let us do this. Now, a couple of different things that have been raised here in, in, in the way of concerns, and one of them, of course, is uh, some of the stuff that's posted on the Cardis website which many people feel uh, is homophobic, uh, misogynist, uh, and a number of other troubling descriptors, I think, that we could use. Brad Clark is the uh, city councilor for Ward 9, and uh, he spoke about this last night. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Brad. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Listen, thanks for taking some time to talk to us about this. Uh, A couple of things I want to ask you about here first, and maybe we'll get into the Cardis uh, situation in a second, but one of the other concerns that was raised, uh, and this is by a number of emails that I got the other day about this, uh, is about the process here, Uh, and and some concern raised by some residents here that City Council is sole sourcing this. In other words, you've been dealing with these guys and did not open this up to anybody else in the public. Is, Is that a concern as far as you're concerned? I believe it is. Um, my preference would have been that it would have gone out to some type of RS, RFP uh, to, in essence, test the marketplace. Are there others who are interested in the property? And then let's compare the values so that we get the best deal for the municipal taxpayer for the adaptive reuse of this heritage property. Um, that didn't happen. I understand that Cardis wasn't supportive of going out to that type of process. Um, but I'm also aware that uh, Mr. Van Pelt, uh, who runs Cardis, was a former city councillor, so he would understand the need to do that type of process. And I think if it was put to him, it, 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 they, they might have been more supportive of it. But ultimately, at the General Issues Committee, they had already made the decision not to go out to the marketplace. Why Why the decision, though? That's that's what I find intriguing about this. And I, I'm not surprised, of course. I mean, if I'm the, the principal involved in this, of course I'd like to, you know, they want the building. and They don't want to, obviously, have an open uh, competition for this thing. But it's not their policy, it's the city's policy. Well, I think everyone around the table might have a different answer to, to that question, uh, Bill. Some of the things that I heard was that we have tried to do RFPs on other heritage properties, and they didn't work out well. Uh, we didn't get what we were expecting, or um, we spent a lot of money on them and, and nothing happened, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in this case, I, I, I would suggest that each property, every time we do it, it's, it's a different situation. So you, you can't compare one property with the results of another property when you're looking at RFPs. Um, there is a, a fairness of process um, argument that has to be made that any organization who may have wanted to consider this property should have been given the opportunity to consider the property. And that's where I feel that, that we failed in, by not offering that up. And it's uh, too late to do that now, I guess. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, you're too far down the road. As, well, just by... Well, they would have to do a reconsideration motion, and, yeah. and candidly, I don't, I don't see the votes around the table to go down that road. Uh, and it, it, to be fair, we 
if you had done that, we probably be, may have ended up in the same spot you're in right now. Uh, they may well have been the only one that came forward. As you say, it's not as if people are crawling over each other to try to take over the cost of uh, renovating some of these heritage buildings. So, But it is a case of process. And, and I, I just didn't hear a whole lot of discussion about that yesterday, but I guess previously there had been. Uh, the other element of this, too, of course, is that uh, the, the, the client themselves, that being Cardis. Uh, talk to us about some of the concerns that have been raised up by this, Brad. I mean, you've seen some of the posts on the, on their web pages, uh, and uh, they are troubling, frankly. And 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 I and I have a problem with them. Uh, give me your give me your take on that, because obviously, I know I'm sure you got feedback from a lot of your residents uh, in this community over the last little while as well. Yeah, I did receive emails, phone calls, and text messages, and 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 social media was was quite busy with it. So there's no doubt in my I, I mean back up i i took the opportunity over the weekend to to read about 10 maybe close to 15 articles from the cardis and scan their entire website and and see what i could glean from it and there's no doubt in my mind that some of the publications articles columns uh, that were there on the website could be interpreted by many as homophobic islamophobic or transphobic equally though to be fair, there were other publications which demonstrated an acceptance of, of Canada's multicultural and religiously diverse society. So there's a little bit of both. Um, the questions that pop up from this are many. Um, and is the language that they're using in these, these columns hate language? Does it cross the threshold in terms of where the Supreme Court is, where the human rights laws are in Ontario? Um, and I don't have answers to all those questions. Some would argue it does, um, but a city council is not the best arbiter for those things. Personally, were you offended by some of the stuff that you saw? Um, I mean, you've been in politics just, a long it, time. You've got a pretty, pretty thick skin. I, I, I can yeah, tell that. Yeah. But. I, 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 I don't think, from my... Offended is... is, is um, I, I mean, a very personal thing. Uh, but I, I think the language that was used, in my opinion, on some of the articles were clearly um, homophobic and were clearly transphobic and Islamophobic. And there were other strong publications that took very strong views on pro-life. Um, and Cardis will argue, and they have, that they are a nonpartisan Christian think tank, and they're a registered charity in Canada, so they're following all of the rules, and so they're entitled to provide these opinions. And the challenge that I found well, that was when I was reviewing the Supreme Court decisions on the matter. It's not as cut and dry as that. Um, I have found that the Supreme Court is very lenient when it comes to freedom of religion, and, and uh, uh, when you're practicing it within your home or within your your place of worship, where it crosses the line for the Supreme Court um, is that uh, they become much more restrictive when it's a public religious statement or, or actions which are deemed to have crossed the legal threshold of inciting hate or violence. So um, while everyone has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of law with regards to discrimination based on religion, the courts have taken the position that one's intentions, religion, or theology does not exempt you from the application of human rights laws. And so that's where we get into this interesting conflict um, between human rights laws um, and religious freedom. And the Supreme Court has started to move in the direction that when things are being stated in public, 
um, than they are infringements of, of human rights laws. You mentioned Mr. Van Pelt a few minutes ago. Michael Van Pelt, of course, is the president of CARDIS. Uh, he has appeared before council committees on this. Uh, was there any discussion at all about some of these postings and, and, and any reaction from uh, Mr. Van Pelt? I wasn't present um, uh, when the at, at the General Issues Committee I had a, a family medical emergency, so I was not present at the time. So I don't know what, what was stated there. Um, and that last night was a council meeting, so... Um, what Mr. Van Pelt did do is he sent a letter to council prior to the meeting outlining their commitment to comply with human rights laws. Um, and, and so I, I guess they're trying to argue that they already meet these thresholds and that they've done the job and that they're, they're in full compliance. Um, but we still have people in the community who are feeling that this is hateful language and that council should be arguing that since it's not congruent with the stated values of city council that we would not proceed with the lease. I don't have an answer to that question either. I've asked the legal to come back and tell us whether or not we can 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 quite literally say um, without a specific municipal policy can we unilaterally deny an offer to lease on the grounds of infringement of human rights or incongruency with our stated values? And, I, and to that, I don't have that answer. And again, we have to make sure that whatever we're doing is procedurally fair. And I understand where you're coming from here, because I think, you, as you mentioned in your comments yesterday at the council meeting, uh, to do it on that ground without any strong legal advice or standing in that, I mean, you could actually be opening the city up for some sort of a lawsuit. I mean, there's an, a number of things that could happen in situations like that. Uh, has, has anybody asked your legal department to look into that? Yes, I asked yesterday, and they will be coming back when the staff report comes back on Carter's. There will be a legal report that will come back that will look at those issues, that will look at whether or not the the Human Rights Code applies to Cardis, that can Cardis file an, an application under the Human Rights Code that the city council, if they denied them, they did it, and it infringed on their, their religious freedoms. These are questions that we don't have legal answers to, but we should have that before we make any determination. Would you be comfortable with, with a motion such as that to, to deny the partnership here based on, on some of the stuff you've seen on their website? Without legal advice, no, I wouldn't be. Um, I, I'm I'm concerned that we're being asked to do something that we really haven't done our homework on, and I know that it makes sense to many people in our community, and it makes, you know, it, on, on first glance, it makes sense that we wouldn't do business with any business with any company that is not congruent or doesn't comply with our stated uh, values as a community, but that really does open up some huge legal questions. And and so I, I I couldn't say yes to that bill until I actually have that legal report. And, and you've seen some of these concerns, and, and I've certainly seen a number of them have been forwarded to me, uh, suggesting the council's actually being hypocritical by even dealing with Cardis here uh, in light of, as you said, the standards that they've set and, and some of the, the homophobia and some of the hate that we've seen in the city over the last number of months right now. Uh, I'm not suggesting Cardis is to blame for it, but some are suggesting that this is adding fuel to the fire. Well, and, and it's not my intention to diminish the concerns or objections of residents. I, I mean, they, they have been very vocal about this. I respect their views, um, and they may well be valid, but I, I, I think I have a responsibility as a counselor to make sure that before I even consider that determination, I have some legal advice to, to lean on. 
Um, and I'm, I'm still not convinced that the city of Hamilton should be the one um, that is determining whether or not the Carter's publications are hate language. Maybe to, to clarify something here, Brad, where are you in the process? I mean, uh, there are some that seem to think this is a done deal and, and you know, these guys are going to start the oh. renovations and move in. We're oh, not gosh, down that no. road yet, are we? Oh, gosh, no, not, not even close. Um, as a matter of fact, I amended the motion last night, um, making it clear um, that the city of Hamilton, just because they're entering into these discussions with Cardis, has not made a decision to lease the property. So in no way, shape, or form should anyone consider that this is a done deal. What will happen from this is we'll get a report back. Cardis will provide us their proposal. Our staff will review the proposal. They'll go out to test it in the market to see what type of, of money we, we could have made had we gone out through an RFP process uh, to the best of their ability, because it's not quite the same thing, Bill. Um, and then they will provide us a report back and possibly with recommendations. Along with that recommendation will be the legal report. And I did venture last night to ask the city solicitor that be prepared, because if you bring back this legal report and is providing us with advice, uh, on an issue like this where it's compelling public interest, I think that legal report should be made public so everyone can learn why council's making a specific decision to say yes or no to, to, to a deal. Yeah, I agree completely. I think there has to be some transparency. And that was one of the other concerns that apparently Cardis and, and city staff had been in discussions for quite some time. And it, it seemed to a lot of us, uh, Brad, as if council got brought into this kind of at the, well, not the 11th hour, but well into the process, the discussion process anyway. Yeah, um, I know um, Councilor Whitehead was unaware of it, and, and I, I know I was not aware of it, and, and so they did. staff did bring it to our attention uh, when it came further along. But at the end of the day, this is an unsolicited proposal that came to the city. The city will do their due diligence both legally and fiscally and make a determination. And I also stated last night that um, we have to make sure that our commitment on civic engagement uh, is is complied with. And so I expect that there will be many in the community, some may be lawyers, some may be academics who may wish to speak to this issue. Um, and they will have that opportunity when that report comes back at GIC. So to answer your earlier question, we're not even close to, to a done deal on this, this matter. This is just the beginning of the process. With that in mind, and, and I don't want to delve too far into the hypothetical here, though, Brad, but what if somebody else comes forward and says, hey, whoa, 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 I'm interested in that, too. Since you guys are discussing it with Cardis, why can't, why can't I get in on this? Um, I think that might provide um, possible cause for some counselors to consider reconsideration uh, of the decision that was made at GIC, um, but failing any... A written correspondence from other bodies to look at that site. I, I, you know, I was disappointed would be the best way, and I'm not being critical of my colleagues. I was disappointed that it wasn't considered for an RFP because the building is in excellent shape. It's a, a prime piece of property, um, and I could see law firms, I could see accounting firms, things like that, having an interest in that property. Um, but we'll never know because we didn't give them an opportunity to to submit. Um, some form of proposal. When we go down the road here, uh, and, and as you say, staff are going to come back with more information, I guess after some discussions with Cardis, Cardis is going to come back with a solid proposal, I suppose. I guess that's when you want to see the dollars and cents and the I's dotted and the T's crossed. 
Uh, is 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 it a done deal then that that's going to happen if everybody seems amenable to this, or is, are are there still some concerns by council? Well, we're still going to have to deal with the legal questions that were yeah. asked of their city solicitor. Um, but if I would expect at this moment, if if uh, legal staff come back and say that they're you don't have the authority to just say no because they don't are not congruent with your values and beliefs, or that they 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 publish things that 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 may or may not be hate speech, um, then I would expect that council will likely be looking solely at the fiscal realities of the deal. And I can't tell you right now whether or not those fiscal realities will be good for the city or not, um, because we've really not received any of that information. Uh, Still a long way to go. I think that's the takeaway from this so far. Anyway, Brad, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for the clarity on this. No problem. Have a good day. You too. That's Brad Clark, the uh, councilor for Ward 9 up on Upper Stony Creek. Uh, with the Carter situation. If you are uh, one of those people that are expressing concerns about this, uh, stay in touch with your counselor because the uh, the decision has not yet been made. This is uh, simply at the negotiation stage right now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Test scores, always a concern, of course, for boards of education. Uh, students have performed above or close to the provincial average in literacy testing here in the Hamilton area. Math, not so much. Joining us to talk about all of this is Amanda Figuera, who is the Director of Education and, of course, the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, District School Board. Amanda, first of all, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. I'm Bill, glad to be on again. I know this uh, can make some people's heads spin when we start throwing percentages and, and this and that, but maybe give us an overview, first of all, on the results that you got. Yes. Um, so when we look at our results, we are always positioning our results based on our three important goals. Our three important goals is how do we improve students' reading by grade one, how do we close the gap in junior math as measured by EQAO in grade six? And how do we then improve our graduation rate? So when I, when I look at all the data, there's always two ways we do analysis on this. Is Number one is how did our results compare relative to all the students who wrote the assessment in the province? So it's always is our gap closing or, or increasing relative to the, to the pro- province? And the second way to look at it, I'm always interested, and I think it's really important, to look at the cohort track. In other words, the same students who wrote a test, an assessment in grade three, how do they do in grade six and how do they do in grade nine? Mm-hmm. Because when you compare year to year, it is a different group of students. So overall, we see some areas we're pleased with, and overall, we see some areas that we still uh, want to focus and improve. So let's let's talk it on the math. I want to get into the literacy stuff too because that's something that I think is very very important. I know you and I've talked about that in the past, but math scores really seem to be the the, the crux of this. I mean, uh, you know, it actually even became an issue in the provincial election a year and a half or so ago because concern about these scores, um, and and it's a couple of different concerns here. I mean, first of all, that's the performance by the the students here in the Hamilton area. Uh, and second of all is the provincial averages, which uh, which seem to be fluttering, shall we say. Uh, so w- where are we here? Is it, is it the curriculum? Is it the way it's being taught? What what seems to be the concern here? Yeah, I'll, it's a good question. So I'll give you analysis. If we look at our results at Public Board, um, so we look at grade six, um, I'm sorry, if we look at a grade nine, a grade three, six results, sorry, Bill, it's 36% of our kids. So our gap is 12% all to the province. But then I look at the data and I look at how did our grade nine students fare this year relative to the province, whether they took academic or applied. And over two-thirds of our students are in academic and less than a third applied. So we look at we're 39% of students reaching provincial in applied and 82 in academic. When I do the analysis of 
how many, what does that really represent in terms of all the grade nines? That's 72% of the students in grade nine met the provincial standard. So I'm curious to know when they were in grade six, how did they fare? So that, that cohort of students wrote the assessment in 15, 16 year, and they were at 38%. So over their grade six, seven, you know, grade, after the grade six year, seven, eight, nine, we look at that data and say, so what trends and patterns are emerging from this assessment, this diagnostic tool? What can we do to focus our programming um, to make the change? So we're seeing that the same group of kids over time, especially when they get to grade nine, uh, when, we, when we do the aggregate analysis in grade nine, are at 72%, yet they were at 38 and, and we're seeing that trend across the province. And the question, you know, is why? Um, you know, when we're asked around, is it the curriculum? You know, what happens in the curriculum in the junior grades? I, like I said before, I know it's quite robust and there's a lot to cover in the curriculum. The other question that comes up is, you know, what is the expert expertise level of our, of our educators? Like when people are hired, do they have... Uh, um, in, you know, in our junior grades, a math background. And, and that's some, an area the ministry has looked at as well. We believe we have to invest in professional learning in our math teachers and help them uh, with their content. But we are seeing from grade six to nine, the same group of kids are, are more than almost, almost double are then achieving it by grade nine. And that's a piece that we're always looking at. In spite of the fact that they seem to be having trouble in the early grades, they recover, and that's that's a, that's a good news story. I understand that, but because uh, I've talked with some of the teachers actually about this, and I, I, they've used like words like the you know, curriculum being robust, and I'm wondering, do you mean overwhelming when you say that? I mean, can can kids handle it? Yeah. So, do I? Is there a high expectation in the curriculum? Yes. When I say robust, sometimes, and I've heard from educators, sometimes not ju- just how much needs to be covered. Um, in, in the time that, you know, that they have throughout the instructional day. And they do find at times the five strands to be covered and the number of curriculum expectations at times a lot to cover. So I think this is what this government is doing, a review of the curriculum to say, you know, what really is the essential learnings that have to happen at each grade? Um, and, um, and that review, that review is welcomed. I know, uh, I know that review is welcomed by us, um, because we hear that from educators, and we know they're doing a great job to, to, cover the, to cover the curriculum. It's also how we position these assessments. I always say, how do we position these assessments? What are we learning about our students? What are some skill gaps in our program? And what are we doing to adjust as they continue to move along our system to help them graduate? And um, so I know the work our teams have done, our teachers, after looking at the grade six assessment, and really programming grade seven, eight, nine to address those skills. And we're seeing that in the grade nine assessment, again, like on, on aggregate of the, of the two types of courses that 72% of the kids have. So, um, so we welcome, we welcome that and, and uh, the review of the curriculum. We hope that will allow the teachers to really narrow and focus on areas to cover. Let's talk about teachers and, and teacher training. And, and, and again, this is uh, something that's been kicked around in Queen's Park for quite some time now. Uh, the, the current government, of course, is talking about actually a, a t- test that teachers would have to have a math test. I'm not so sure half the people in, the, in Queen's Park could pass the math test either, but be that as it might. It, it, the analogy I, I think that is maybe most apt here, Manny, as somebody explained uh, on the program a little while ago, uh, elementary school teachers especially, if you can equate it to the medical profession, they're, they're the general practitioners. Uh, and then, of course, in, in high school, you get into the people in, like doctors in, into specialties. But how do you ensure that those general practitioners, those teachers in, in the elementary grades, 
are, are properly equipped to be able to handle the curriculum. I mean, you know, let's face it, no matter who, whether it's you, me, or anybody else, we all had strengths and weaknesses in our academic careers. And, you know, here's somebody who's teaching math who maybe is not that good at or proficient at it. Uh, and then they're, they're going to have difficulty teaching it, let alone, you know, trying to impart that, that information to the kids. So from our perspective, we believe the importance, one of the strategies is professional learning. So how do we invest in teachers with professional learning um, to help, help them with some of the effective pedagogical practice and some of the content areas? You know, um, you know boards do receive some money for that professional learning, and sometimes, it's, you, know, it's, you know, is it adequate to, to reach all? No, we can't. So we try to then, where are we going to focus? Our focus has been on the junior grades to understand, because that's our largest gap when they write the grade 6 assessment, and then how do we close that gap from grade 6 to 9? And our assessments are showing that. I think another strategy um, is to really look at, um, and we've spoken, you know, to some faculties of education around this. Now that the teacher uh, program is two years, um, is that what, what, you know, in the two-year programming, what is sort of that training and learning that will be provided in two years that's really focused around math? You know, the the, the test, I've been asked, what's your opinion on the test? And I say this about all tests. Any kind of test, if I'm going to be tested personally, Will I have the training uh, before before giving the test if I'm going to be successful? Sure. So, so I think working with the faculties of education will also be important in the, in the two-year program. What will be the requirement around math training and math uh, courses, especially for our general, you know, teachers who are more generous coming in the elementary? And I think that's also an area to look at. I, I listen. I know. I, I don't buy into this myth, by the way. The teachers, you know, run out of th- two minutes after three, and they take all the summers off. I know a lot of teachers that are taking extra courses. Uh, but those are voluntarily uh, taken courses uh, as opposed to mandatory. Uh, is, is, is there some desire? And I, I understand that there's some other courses like that as well, but is, is, is there a desire when you start looking at some of these, and I'm talking about a province-wide basis here, Manny, uh, to, to have some more mandatory courses, to be able to give top-ups uh, to, to that profession like many other professions do from time to time? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example of Hamilton Wentworth. Sure. We offer mass additional qualification courses here, um, we're accredited to offer them, and we offer them in the summer and the evenings. They're always full. They're always to capacity. Um, so there is a desire, desi- and we're seeing the evidence. We also offer, uh, over the summer, we call Summer Institute, and some of those Summer Institute are all around professional learning, led by some of our staff, uh, led by instructors, and some of the areas is around assessment mathematics. Our Summer Institute and our additional qualification courses sell out. That's how full they are, and that's educators doing it in the evenings um, and during the summer. So there is um, there is a great desire, and the evidence and the evidence here locally, I can say, is by the by the enrollment numbers of our staff. I, I did want to touch on the literacy stuff too, uh, as I say, because we've talked about that in the past. You've got to be pretty pleased with the numbers in the Hamilton area. Yeah, like I I am pleased, and I mean, there's an area of concern I have as well. So when I when I look at our results, I I, I look at our our grade three writing, and I, and I wonder over time, and the provincial results have dropped. So again, then I, then I pause and I say, okay, let's look at our grade six students. So um, our grade six students were jumped from 70, 73, again, a different group of kids. So then I say, the, the students in grade six who achieved level three in grade six writing, how did they do in 2015-16? They were at 63%. So I said the same group of kids in grade three, six, so the same cohort have you know on this type of assessment 
have improved um, by 10%. And that's why it's important to look at it from cohort tracking versus year to year, because it is a different group, group of students. The other element to this, too, though, is, as you mentioned, when provincial averages start to dip, does that, uh, does that indicate to you that there's a, perhaps a systemic problem here? Yeah, so when I looked at the grade three writing and I thought, what, you know, so just my own reflections of what's transpired over time. And I've asked my team to think, we've, we've dipped, so is the province. Curious, to type, you know, we do analysis of what type of writing forms in that assessment tool are students being asked um, to write about. And are we reflecting that in our program? Are the same type of tasks being reflected? And then I also um, wonder, as we've engaged a lot more in the digital world, that our, our students are, you know, reading and writing and using not only the physical world in the classroom, but our teachers are really integrating technology. So I'm wondering, as the next generation is coming, is the writing tasks being asked to do in paper and pencil really reflective of our learners today? That's the question I have, because... There's a provincial trend of dropping. Um, we do ask our kids to write, but in different shapes and different forms, or to express and communicate, not only in written form, but in oral form and in presentation. So as teachers differentiate the way kids can demonstrate their learning, and we've been promoting that, is the paper and pencil task really reflective of our digital learner today? Well, <laughs> I, I just, as you were talking about that, I can't remember the last time I used cursive. Uh, I mean, everything is, you know, it's all fingers now, right? Uh, on the phone, on the keyboard, wherever it might be, uh, which indicates that maybe there should be some, some discussion, I guess, at the, at, this is at the ministry level, of course, uh, about the tools that are being used. And that's where you get into that discussion about, you know, whether or not phones should be allowed in the classroom and things of that nature. But it, it does, I think, need to be more reflective of, of 21st century technology. Would you agree? I agree, and we know the CEO of EQEO. I've spoken to Nora Marsh, and she's done a, a sort of, uh, is really trying to say, how do I modernize this type of assessment tool? Um, I had this, um, so they're looking at that exactly. How do they digitize and modernize, and um, is there potentially providing students choice in this assessment tool? In other words, we can assess this, these expectations, but students might have a choice in terms of what module they might want to demonstrate that in, in a digital format could be an option. Again, that's, that's the type of pedagogy our teachers are instilling in their classroom. And it's funny, you just mentioned around the curse of writing, a, a gentleman in the community asked me that the other day, and, and, and then my response was putting our beliefs aside, because I was raised in curse of writing, but I did say I also remember teaching art class when I was an elementary teacher, and I taught, curse, I taught calligraphy. And I said, calligraphy became an art form, and I wonder whether curse of writing will become an art form, because you just mentioned it, should be practiced hours and hours of that skill if that skill is actually not being required in any workplace. So how are we aligning our curriculum to make sure it's actually reflected in sort of the skills economy? Where would I actually practice that skill or need that skill in a, in a workplace? And if I don't need it, should I be spending hours practicing that skill that could be obsolete today? Uh, a, a great discussion point, and we'll have to leave it yeah. there right now. Manny, as always, thanks so much for taking some time and explaining what's going on here, and uh, continue good luck with you and the board. Thank you, Bill, for your time. Take care. Manny Figuardo, of course, who's the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.